Okay, so we're in chapter 30 now. Um, I'm going to be a little ambitious this morning and try to get us through chapter 31. It so happens that 31 is only nine verses. So if we can make it through 30, we can probably get through 31 also. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. A couple weeks ago, we tried to get through 29 and only made it through eight verses. So we'll, see. we'll just see how it goes. You know, sometimes with these sections, there's a lot to say about a few verses, and then we'll have whole, you know, chunks of verses that there's really not a whole lot to say about them. So we'll just see how it goes. The, the heading that I have in my Bible for this chapter, chapter 30, is do not go down to Egypt. We have read a few of these verses before, um, so some of this will be a repeat, but here we go. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. I'll go ahead and read the next two verses also. An oracle on the beasts of the Negeb, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. Okay. Um, I did not do any research on Zoan and Haines, so I have nothing to tell you about them. Uh, but I did look at the Negeb, um, and I have a picture that we can pass around. Real happening place, huh? There's a lot going on in the Negev. It's a, it's, it's like a lot of excitement, a lot of big cities. It's a metropolis over there. Yeah. The Negev is a desert wilderness south of Israel. Um, do you remember back when we were talking about Tarshish? The important thing to know about Tarshish was its location relative to Israel. So the important thing about Tarshish is that it's on the edge of the map. And so the significance of, of um, Jonah going to Tarshish or Paul and his, you know, his missionary journey, I think you did an article about that, and his missionary trip, you know, his goal was to get to Tarshish because conceptually that is the end of the That's world. It. It's, you, know, it. you don't get any more further west than that. Yeah. Okay, so the significance of the Negev like that is, is its relationship to Israel. It's on the way down to Egypt. That's the important thing to know. So when the Israelites are, are leaving Egypt and they exit via the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. This is, 
this is the land south of of um, Israel. It you know today it technically is within Israel, but it's this is not the promised land. Does that make sense? This is this is uh, there there are there are Canaanites who live here. Um, it's not that it's uninhabited, but um, it is sort of this in between space between Israel and Egypt. So when it's talking about Negeb, it's saying don't go into this place because this is your way back, literally down on the map, down towards Egypt. God says don't do it. Any thoughts so far? I have brought this up before, but there is a there's a similarity that I keep seeing whenever it talks about Egypt to the the foreign woman of Proverbs. Um, the wording is strikingly similar, and it it, it I, I notice it every time here. So in Proverbs, Solomon says, "Don't don't go down to the the foreign woman. Don't go down. Her her steps lead to death. Don't go." downward to the the woman of the strange tongue um she's a she's a a foreign intoxicant and um it seems like she will add to your life but in the end uh you will be destroyed this is the same kind of warning here with egypt uh do not go down to egypt her way will lead to death and it seems like in the face of the assyrian threat that egypt would be a source of help for Israel. You know, they're looking around to see who their allies are at this point in time. Egypt is a notoriously difficult to control country. Um, the Assyrians at this point in time were not able to take Egypt, and so it looks like, well, we should ally with Egypt. They're doing pretty good against the Assyrians. Um, don't do it, God says. This this will not go well for you. What else could we say about this chunk of verses? We will come to the great inversion where Christ in his pursuit of the foreign woman, her way does lead to death. He does die in his pursuit of her. But in doing so, he turns death on his head. And that is what I've been calling the great inversion. So in in the interplay of these countries and these civilizations, we see like the drama of the gospel beginning to play out. It's kind of interesting in verses six and seven about Egypt. I mean, yeah, God is not saying that these folks are not rich. Right. I mean, they are, and He tells about all these riches on their camels and all this, but unfortunately, they can't help. Yeah. 
we'll we'll come up more on that walking with Christ. That will be something that we look at more even in even this morning. So that's great. Um, God calls Egypt Rahab. That's kind of interesting. Rahab was well. There's there's several things we can say about Rahab. I mean, the obvious first thing is that Rahab was the name of the prostitute. So there's a connection between Egypt and the foreign woman. The, the, I mean, there's a direct connection there. Um, I'm not making. I mean, this this is not an arbitrary comparison that I'm drawing. Um, Rahab was literally the name of a a prostitute um, in the story of Israel's history. Now, I have a, I have sort of a pet theory with this, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I I think that um, that God is not invoking the prostitute Rahab and calling naming Egypt after the prostitute. I think it's actually the other way around. It so happens that Rahab was the name of um, not only Leviathan, but also Rahab was the name of the angel of the Red Sea in the you know ancient worldview of you know how the how they thought about this stuff. Uh, Rahab, and I, I was surprised when I came across this, but this is this is just how it is. Uh, there, you have these principalities and entities that are over various geographical regions. It so happens that the angel of the Red Sea was was named Rahab, right? So, when it talks about uh, the monster of the ocean and the Leviathan and Rahab, these are all connected. So later on in Isaiah, and I believe it's in chapter fifty-one. I'm going to try to find it real quick. Yeah, here we go. Verse nine in chapter fifty-one. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? So Rahab, in this case, is the name of this this uh, primordial dragon, this, this mysterious creature. Isaiah 51, verse 9. So in the past few chapters, we've been having this thing where in, in the background of what of what God is doing with His people, there's the there's we could I don't there's several things we could call this we could call this the conflict in the heavenlies we could call this just the moving of, of the principalities across the world, um, in the background of what is happening on the on the, the global stage. There are angels at work and there are principalities at work and this is. It's something that we often can't see, and so Walton has called this many times the excluded middle, right? It, because it, it is something that for most of our experience is hidden, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening in the background of what God is doing. Um, and so there's not really a whole lot I can say other than that it's there and it's happening, and it's happening today. We just don't always realize it's happening. So... In the story of Rahab, yes. is there somewhat of a prophetic element or redemption arc that story? I mean, I would say that's the great inversion at play, where you have, uh, you know, the, the one person who is who is rescued or saved when uh, when Judgment Day arrives on the Canaanites happens to be uh, a strange woman, a prostitute of all people. It's it's a story of grace. 
So the significance of the name Rahab Hem Shabbat would be that um, the forces of Satan are helpless, more or less. It, it, it is as if they are just sitting idle. Are stilled. It's like when Christ calms the wind and the waves. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that. Um, uh, and I don't want to make too big a deal about this point, but you know, my my theory is that uh, Rahab was named after Egypt rather than the other way around. That's right. kind of that's kind of what I'm getting or, at. Uh, yeah. Or this principality. Or this principality. Yeah, yeah. God is calling attention to the demonic forces behind Egypt by doing this. By by calling her Rahab, he's he's calling attention to what's happening behind the scenes. Don't put your faith in... If you put your faith in Egypt's help at this point in history, you are inadvertently aligning yourself with these demonic forces that I got you away from in the first place. Wow. Well, and this is not uncommon at all. I mean, there are lots of uh, names within Scripture that are based on Baal. Yes. Including Zerubbabel. Yes. This very significant royal person captivities. Where did you get the name Rahab for Egypt? I didn't hear some other ancient writings, not from the scripture as far as the, uh, the well, we the... just, we, we, we have a, a place here in chapter 30, verse 7 where God calls Egypt Rahab. Right. Yes. <clears throat> um, in, 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 in ancient, this is, I'm trying to think of where I encountered this because I'm going off of memory here. I believe it's in John Walton's writings he talks about this. But Rahab was the was the name for the Red Sea or the you know principality behind the Red Sea. You said in verse seven. Isaiah yeah. thirty seven. I call her Rahab. Yeah, they're trying to help you out. They're not doing a good job of it. That's, yeah. interpretation. That's an interpretation of the name. Yeah, they're they're translating. They're trying to translate the name and putting it in the verse, but it's yeah. So you're saying that the Hebrew underneath Egyptians is actually Rahab. It's Rahab, right? Rahab means means boastful or strong. So strength, yeah. Large. Oh, so it's strength. Okay. The Hebrew is the Hebrew is Rahab. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Uh, say more, say more. Uh, keep going. Look, exp- explain what you mean. Elaborate. Yeah. I'm referring to, to, you know, the Bible repeats things that happened in the Old Testament. Yes. With the heart of Rahab, and it's quoted in one of my favorite chapters, chapter Hebrews. And it just says, by faith, the heart of Rahab perished not with them that believed not. It's a crazy story. The story of Rahab is is a wild story. It's really giving her a lot of loose here. I mean, I'm not saying that she's not a good person. I'm just saying that the Bible 
a yeah. situation like you're saying, yes. you would think that a person living It's, it's not clear at all what causes Rahab to do what she does in the story where she's hiding the spies. I mean, there's no clear reason for why she would um, do such a thing other than the fact that at this point in time, news of what has happened with the Red Sea has reached. Uh, yeah. But why is she the only one? Yeah, we, we don't, yeah, we don't, yeah, it's, a, and, and then, and then she, she, Lies. It's a she flat out lies to the king, um, and God blesses her for it. It's a crazy story. It's not unlike the Egyptian midwives uh, protecting the, the the baby boys in Egypt, telling at best a white lie, and and God blesses them for it. It's it's these are these are strange stories that we have. Well, then the inversion here going back. I mean, Rahab was not a prostitute whose strength sat still. And in this case, yeah. Egypt's wouldn't rise up. To yeah, yeah. It's it is it is very much a story of inversion, and and it points directly to <coughs> Christ uh, saving saving the harlot, which is us. We are the foreign woman who have been saved by Christ. She yeah. becomes into the genealogy of our Lord. Also, yes. Yeah. It, I don't dispute what you're yeah. saying, but it's actually two different. Hebrew words, but the pronunciation strong says Rahab or mm-hmm. Rahab, but uh, over in uh, Joshua, Rahab comes from Rahab, the C-H, it's a 7343, and the other one's 72 something. So there is a difference in the Hebrew, but I don't dispute what you're saying. Uh, Just draw attention to that. So, yeah, the... Sometimes it is the consonants are the same, right? It's the vowels that are different. Uh, let me see here. Strong, I believe so. Strong's says that her her over in Joshua, it's R A C H A B, Rachab, and then uh, let me go to the other one. It, well, first it's uh, Rahab is seven three four three, and then. Uh, The the reason why the reason why I ask is because back then the, there weren't vowels there weren't written vowels and so it was the same word at the time that this was written so yeah then yeah. Uh, Strong's has uh, for for here it's uh, well, it's down there right. we might also say that in this. Uh, Relationship with these two sisters. Oh yeah, seventeen and three. As Rahab becomes saved, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, even the demons unwittingly uh, are furthering the purposes of our Lord. Yes. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah. Here in Isaiah, it's seven two nine three. I don't know anything about ancient Hebrew, <laughs> but in modern Hebrew which was more or less reinvented by Israel, Hanukkah and Hanukkah are the same thing. You see them spelled both ways, yeah, but it's true. the same thing. Yeah. That's true. All right. Uh, one more strong. Say what now? A strong point. Yeah. That I see is consistent within the Scripture. To me, very much, a lot of things are, are beginning with the word by faith. Yes. By faith, the heart of Rahab. So it 
without faith, it's impossible to please God. The scripture says so. It appears, or maybe I'm not I'm wrong, but it, it maybe God had given her faith. Oh yeah. By faith, she did this. And faith yes. Is to God. But it's a lack of faith that would lead Israel to follow after Rahab. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the story of Samson. Some of these, cra- these crazy stories that really only make sense if you see them through the lens of the great inversion. It, it's, uh, yeah. Um, all right, I want to point out one more thing about this chunk of verses before we move on. And that is that very often in Israel's walk with God, and by extension, our walk with God, um, the consequences of sin are just God letting the sin play itself out. That is more often more often than not, that is enough consequence. <laughs> and it's and 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 when God issues a judgment on Israel, it's not an arbitrary judgment. It has to do with what the sin was in the first place. And so in this case, the you know if if Israel allies itself with Egypt, the consequence. And the judgment is that it's allied with Egypt. That is itself the consequence, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Now that happens. That happens all over the place in people's lives. The 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 judgment or sin of becoming an addict is being an addict. That is the that is the the consequence. And and that's absolutely true. Yeah. God forgives our sin guilt. But he doesn't. He is not uh, bound to relieving us of the consequences of our sin. And one yeah. of the things about sin is it's bad for us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so that these judgments that you see in Scripture, although they they may seem harsh, when God is saying, "If you do this, I will do this," more often than not, He's just letting He's just letting the consequences play themselves out. He's just telling you what they're going to be. Now, we see this again with the foreign woman, or the, the adulteress in Proverbs, where it says, you know, your flesh and body will be spent, you'll groan in your agony, you're going to regret all your life choices and all of this stuff. Well, that is, those, those things are just the natural consequence of living this kind of lifestyle. And this sort of thing is all over the place in Proverbs. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. And then we get to the, the walking in the way, which we'll, we'll talk more about that. All right, verse 8. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. He was just talking about this in the previous chapter. This is still the same prophecy. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. If they had this word in Hebrew, they would say it will be like an explosion. Its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth 
or to dip up water out of the cistern. So in verse 8 he says, Go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book so that it may be for the time to come. Now we talked about this already either last week or the week before with the sealed up scroll. These prophets were well aware that neither they nor the people they were prophesying to would understand all of what they're talking about. They, they were well aware that some of this stuff was to be sealed up for the future. And First Peter discusses this. Uh, Jim, I think you're already looking it up, aren't you? No, oh, no? No, I wouldn't, but I can't. Okay, First Peter, yeah, if you would. First Peter 1, 10 through 12. stuff was about something greater than they could understand in their day. They, they knew that this was looking forward to something much greater. Um, it's like Job saying, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know whether I will be dead or alive, but I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth. So we can also invoke Luke 24 where on the Emmaus Road Christ is talking with these disciples and he's explaining to them that everything in the Old Testament was about him. Every single thing, yeah. from start to finish, it was all about Christ, yeah. right? And so, when Isaiah says, "Seal up these words for future time," he's saying, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter that they don't understand right now, because these words will not come back void. The words of Scripture will not come back void. It may take centuries, but the Messiah will come, and everything in this book will come true. Um, well, in this passage, and Peter should also keep us humble about our own approach to prophecy. Yeah. Here we have the natural consequence of aligning with Egypt or being like Egypt. They become a rebellious people. They become lying children, lying like Rahab, yeah? They become children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They become like Pharaoh. If you end up trusting in Egypt and aligning yourself in Egypt, you end up becoming like Pharaoh. You, you become what you pay attention to. That's what worship is. It, worship is just attention. That's all it is. You become or you imitate what you give attention to. Um, if you want to become a good public speaker, you pay attention to good public speakers and you listen to what they say and you absorb sort of that way of thinking and talking into you. It's a, it's a kind of worship. That's just how human nature is. Um, so if you, if you admire Egypt and you want to become like Egypt in the threat of Assyrian invasion, um, you will uh, blind yourself to what the prophets are saying. This is, again, just the natural consequence of this sort of idolatry. 
Let's see what else can we say about this. And then what's the consequence of that? You, you're no longer the church anymore. Yeah, that is just the natural consequence. It's like a group thing, isn't it? You're just real concerned about what they think of yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah, really yeah, about yeah, what's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, speaking of uh, controversial and uh, speaking of current events, this, a very weird thing happened, and I don't really know what to make of it. But I, I can't help but see that it's a parable. It's a, you know, this 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 guy that I watch a lot. He has this saying: "The symbolism just happens." And we had a symbolism happens moment. And so I'm just going to present this to you. And it's it's a it's a terrible story about this submersible that exploded. Um, a very weird thing. Um, the the Titanic was uh, named after um, was named after the Greek gods, the Titans, um, and it literally means large one. I mean, you might as well just call it Rahab. Um, it's the same. I mean, it means the exact same thing. It was a thing of boasting. It was a thing of uh, uh, pride. It had a reputation for uh, being unsinkable even by God. Uh, people were saying this, and um, and you know we all know what happened to the Titanic. Well, there's this weird fascination with going down to the Titanic and going to see the Titanic, and um, terrible thing that happened. But when you when you sometimes when you become fascinated with something, you end up uh, having the same fate as what they're looking at. I mean, it's just this sort of weird symbolism happens moment. And I, it's, it's an illustration, I think, for going down to Egypt. When you go down to, when you go down to Rahab, you end up exactly like this talks about. Your, your experience, the breaking will come suddenly in an instant, like that of a potter's vessel. It'll be an implosion. And it, it's, just, it's just a weird parable that happened. And um, I don't know what to say about it other than that. But basically, we just saw an illustration of the very thing that we're talking about here. You so. know, sometimes God turns us over to insanity. I've heard a video by this captain of this submersible. And he said, well, here's the porthole. And it's made out of plexiglass that's seven inches thick or something like that. And when we go down, the pressure will push this porthole in about three quarters of an inch. And he said, but, he said, if the pressure gets too great, this porthole will begin to crinkle and crack. And that will give us a signal to go up to the top. I thought, man, if that thing begins to crinkle, you've got about two steps to your late. Too late. There's two things I can say about that. I won't restrain myself. But like you say, the Titanic was on the bottom of the ocean because of hubris. Okay, that's... Hubris got it there. Hubris, you know, it lives down there. It dwells down there, and it seems to be the same thing with the with this company and this um, 
these submersibles. This unsinkable. Not not every submersible explodes. No, I mean, no. it, it was there was there no. there were there were weaknesses in its construction that are directly tied to the hubris of yeah. of the company. I mean, there, wow. there was there was pride involved pride. that led to Man. this horrible accident happening. And the other, yeah. the other thing I would say is that nature always wins. Yeah, reality always wins. Uh, nature wow. is far stronger than we are. Yeah, and you know, I would apply this to the whole climate change thing. Now, now the Biden administration has announced they are going to start blocking the sun <laughs> for climate change. Nature always wins. All you have to do is look at pavement to see grass coming up through it. <laughs> Nature always wins. We are living out a skit from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> We're living in it. Alright. Uh, let's see. For... Thus says the Lord God, I'm at verse 15 now. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. This is, this is what he was telling them. Don't rely on Egypt, rely on me. You will be saved in quietness and trust. Be still and know that I am God. I will be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away. You said, we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. This is exactly what I was talking about with the consequences of sin. God is just letting, letting it play out. You know, you want to, you want to uh, uh, rely on the strength of horses? You, you'll get what you want but it will be terrible. The consequence of relying on the strength of horses will be using them to flee from the Assyrians. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, um, I want to go ahead and look at this next chunk of verses because I think we have some things we can say about that. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, capital T, teacher, will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. This is exactly when Isaiah was saying, seal this up for the time to come. Here, here it is. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. When you turn to the right, when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. So Christ shows up and he's called the teacher. He's the teacher, and um, he leads his disciples, and they call it the way. And there is an enormous amount of spiritual activity going around, going on around the Messiah when he shows up on the earth. There's exorcisms left and right. In fact, that is a that's a mark of the disciples going out is is the scattering of of demons. 
Sometimes that is as um, theatrical as you know an exorcism. Sometimes it's just what's happening behind the scenes and we don't even see it, but the demons are still scattering. You will say to them, be gone. Right. So this is a prophecy about the church age. This is about the way and walking with Christ. Do you have your Septuagint on your phone? Uh, yeah, it may take a second to access it, but uh, what you got? Well, I'm just wondering what the translation of the word word is there in 21, whether that's rhema or... Oh, yeah. Um, hang on one second. That's that's worth taking the time to look at. Which uh, you said, shall hear a word, that one? Yeah, verse 21. It's Logos. Okay, so yeah. that's So, yeah, your ears shall hear... The Word, capital W, the Word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And then you will cast aside your idols. So, um, it just so happens that there's this place in Egypt, and I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but I'll I'll bring it next week to, to share with you. There is a place in Egypt where, as the story goes, when infant Christ came through, um... This, this giant field of idols just they all crashed to the ground and this is a known place in Egypt and to this day that, that field of broken and scattered idols is, is still there and the, the, the Coptic Christians say this, this happened back when infant Christ came through I mean they're very matter of fact about it um, it is what it is so <laughs> And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, and bread the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. In my notes, I have here that this this verse is about the, the, the giving or the coming of the Logos. Speaking of the Logos, which you pointed out. It's the name of it's the arrival of the name of the Lord. Not just the arrival of the Lord, but the arrival of his name. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction, and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Anything about this section before we move on? That's about all I have to say about it. But we can hang out here if we need to. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire. 
it's it's an important thing symbolically speaking to track fire in scripture fire is always a mark of God's presence now it can be the fire of Pentecost or the fire of hell that choice is yours but it will be fire nonetheless with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones the Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on him will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place, here we go, a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready. I'm going to invoke the Ariel from chapter 29 that we talked about. The altar in the great cosmic temple of the world, right? Where you have this burning place that has long been prepared. Uh, It's no coincidence that it looks like a ziggurat, and it burns continuously, uh, day and night, night and day. For the king, it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. I will add, and her smoke rises forever and ever. Amen. This is Babylon, burning away till the end of time. Hallelujah. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. If you didn't get it the first time, he'll say it again. Who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet, he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper, Egypt, will stumble. And he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. This is the blind leading the blind. For thus says the Lord to me, As a lion or young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Uh, This is not the only time that God calls himself a protective bird. Um, Several examples come to mind. The Spirit of God hovering over the formless and void creation. Um, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. And then in Psalm 17, it talks about David hiding under the shadow of God's wings. Keep me as the apple of your eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. From Psalm 17.8. So like a protective bird, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Uh, it might seem like a kind of a strange image, but uh, birds can be very protective. I mean, I've seen I've seen mockingbirds chase chase cats away. I mean, chase. I mean, they can. Yeah. yeah a mockingbird can dispatch a, a predator pretty quickly if it has a mind to do it. So. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. 
The Septuagint reads, Return, you who planned a deep and lawless counsel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Um, the Septuagint reads for that last verse, and I think this is significant. You know, we've been saying from the beginning, from all the way back in chapter one, we've been saying, look for the seed, because that is what God is interested in, in the story of what's happening right now. Keep your eye on the seed. So this verse in the Septuagint reads, blessed is he who has a seed in Zion. Which verse? The last, uh, verse nine. Okay. Blessed is he who has a seed in Zion. The seed is Christ. The word planted in the hearts of his people. They'll be scattered, they'll go into exile, but the seed of God's word is planted in them, right? And that seed will go down to Egypt. And it's no coincidence that the that the idea of the logos comes out of Alexandria, right? So the the seed, the logos, comes forth. Christ, infant Christ goes down in hiding to Egypt. And he comes back to Israel incarnate. So, yeah. There you go. That's that's the story of the gospel right there. The Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. This is the this is the the word sword that we see throughout Scripture. Um, I believe in my in my study of Genesis three twenty four. I believe that the sword that turns this way and that, protecting paradise, is the word of God. I think the flaming sword. The sword of God's presence is, is the word. I think I think that is. That is what guards the way to the tree of life. You have to get through the words of Scripture to get to the tree of life. Yeah, that is that's just how it works. Um, you have to. It, it only through Christ do you do you get to paradise. This is the way. Walk in it. Um, so the flaming sword is is the Logos. It is, it's the Word of God. And this Word is a dividing sword. And it can be either a sword of healing or judgment. I mean, this is, again, this is the fire of hell or Pentecost, depending on, depending on you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. So in Revelation, when Christ shows up, it's a sword that's coming out of his mouth. Yeah, right. This is this is the same image from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation. The word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. Any final thoughts before we close up? Uh, if I could go backwards. Yeah. Uh, back, back in 30, uh, verse 33, what was the first line of your translation? Verse 33. For a burning place has long been prepared. Okay. My, my translation says tofet or yeah. tofet. It means funeral pyre. Funeral pyre. Yeah. Uh, funeral pyre or a 
cigarette. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'll look it up. This month is the same thing. Okay. So, <laughs> what, is that based on a place? Or? Uh, hang on. Let me pull it so back. This is a place of cremation, a place of fire, a place in the southeast end of the valley of the sun. Yeah, I mean, a funeral pyre, Jerusalem. burning is one thing, but a funeral pyre is something very specific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can mean burning place or funeral pyre, um, at least from the word study, but in relation to the context of the place or something like that. What an ominous warning. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Be yeah. careful, Israel, I have prepared your funeral pyre. Yeah. Which, going back to the consuming or destructing fire, depending on the translation you look at, of God, this warning. I mean, this would be, I mean, if it's a place of cremation, like Greg said, I think he has there. I mean, this is a all consuming, destructive fire. I mean, yeah. When you cremate, I mean, yeah. there is there is extremely high temperature. Yes, yeah, there is nothing left uh, other than ash. So, yeah. Just out of curiosity, where, in, what was it in Alexandria where the Septuagint was mainly translated? Yep. This stuff does not happen by accident. This, as as we said earlier, symbolism happens. Yeah. It's a fascinating the thing. Logos coming out of yeah. 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 Was Even just the concept of the logos. Yeah. Just the fact that it comes out of Egypt. This stuff is just astounding to me. It's in, I don't know what to what take out of this, but it's interesting that that Alexandria was a Greek colony. So the stuff is coming out of Egypt, but it's done through the Greeks. Yes. So I mean, that's just yeah. It, Alexandria was a it was a it was a melting pot kind of city. It was not primarily Egyptians who lived no. in Alexandria. No. Yeah. And it was it was it was appointed for a specific time and a specific. I mean, Alexandria still exists, but the Alexandria of the ancient world is long gone, right? The the library is no more. I mean, the, this the, this may go back to Noah. Um, because the Egyptians are Hamitic people, the Greeks come out of Japheth, and, and their promise was that they would share the tent of, of Shem. Mm. So God had singled them out, you know, to be the root of the Gentile church. Yes. Eons ago. Yeah. Well, and, and then just think how many of the church fathers are even have Alexandria in their name. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. to the. Tertullian, the person who invented the word Trinity. I mean, he was Alexandrian. Yeah, it's just this was a this was a this was fertile ground for the gospel. Uh, Alexandria was a special place, that, and God had a special purpose for it in that in that time. So um, she was like the first fruits of the church, you know, bursting forth in Gentile land. So, all right, let's stop there. We'll uh, we'll hit chapter thirty-two next week.